0: Welcome to this week's episode of Tuesdays Are for Talking, a weekly podcast from Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas. Here's your host, Pastors Corey Sullivan and Nathan Brown. Welcome into this week's edition of Tuesdays Are for Talking. I am Nathan Brown here with my co-host Corey Sullivan. Say hi, Corey.
1: What's up, everyone?
0: So glad that you're here. We've got some amazing guests with us today. I just want to do a quick introduction of them, and then we'll get into some conversation. So with us on the podcast today, these are all people who are members of Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas. Kim Chung is with us. Kim is a part of our TGA ministry, which we've talked about before, and we will talk about more on this podcast. She's been a part of Mosaic for about six years, and she works in technology, and she says that we might not understand this, and I don't. But specifically, she works in outdoor managed Wi-Fi solutions. It sounds really cool so I just wanted to tell you that about Kim. Also on the call today, we've got Megan Harding. Megan actually was a founding member of TGA at Mosaic Church. She has since moved to Houston, but she makes clear every time we talk, she retains her membership at Mosaic, and we are certainly glad that she does. At Mosaic Church, Megan is involved in TGA. She was a marriage group leader. She also worked in the student ministry. She's been a part of our church family for about 15 years. Now, professionally speaking, Megan is a civil rights attorney. She's also the co-founder of Rosa Rebellion, and you can find more. Information about them on Instagram, you just go to instagram.com forward slash R-O-S-A Rebellion. And you can learn more about that. Also today, we have Connie Chen. Connie's involved in our music ministry, our worship ministry at Mosaic. She also works at the coffee bar. So she's a friendly, familiar, smiling face that you have no doubt seen many, many times at the church. She's been a part of our church for about eight years. Connie also works in real estate and architectural design. Really glad to have Connie with us on the conversation today. And then finally, last but not least, Mr. Mario Davis. Mario is also a part of our TGA ministry. He's been at Mosaic for about two years and Mario works as a manager in technology and process governance. I don't know what that means either. All I know is I have some brilliant <laughs> people on the call today that are over my heads and I'm glad each of you are here. So let me just start where I ended up. Mario, what else would you like for us to know about yourself as we get into today's conversation? man?
2: I, I'm married. I've got two daughters, uh, six and nine, Emma and Isla. I'm originally from South Africa, Cape Town, I lived under the apartheid government, learned a lot of lessons from that experience. And there's a lot of, um, I would say, nuggets that I took away from from that experience. And I choose to use that experience to educate people when I can. Um, and also just to tell my story um, as a means to relate to others and have others relate to me.
0: Well, man, we're glad that you're here. Glad that you're part of the church. We're glad you're on the podcast today. Connie, is it just working my way back up here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background.
3: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm humbled to be here. I am an Austin native. I was born here um, and then went East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, and circled back here about eight years ago um, and landed at Mosaic. Traveling kind of all, you know, growing up, it was good. I got to see a lot of the country, got got to meet a lot of different types of people, live in a lot of different types of neighborhoods. So that's been a really cool part. So my dad came from, he was born in Taiwan, Taipei, and he moved to the States when he was about 26 and met my mother. She is German, so I get to be the beautiful
4: combination of Taiwan. women. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Megan, how, how about you? What else would you like for us to know about you before we get into our conversation?
4: Yeah, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm Megan. I now live in Houston. It's been um, an interesting transition, but it's been good. I do miss um, my Mosaic family for sure. I am married. I just had my first baby beginning of January. So January 6th, a um, little boy named Eli um, yeah, congratulations! And thank you. He's, he's great. He's awesome. He's really sweet. I always tell him though, I'm like, I'm sorry we didn't, you know, bring you into a better time in the world. It's, it's been a, it's been an interesting time having him during this kind of turbulent period. Uh, for our country. And yeah, I work, as you said, as a civil rights attorney, I also co-founded Rosa Rebellion, also worked on TGA. So I guess I would say the main thing about me is that it's become very clear over the course of my life that I have a specific calling to do work around equities and dismantling um, oppression. And you know, I come to that through the lens of an African American woman, and so I bring my lived experience in, and also the experience of those that I encountered through my work and my family, and my friends.
0: Well, Megan, we're so glad to have you on the podcast, and I'm just—I'm actually glad we're recording this over video, so I get to see you. Megan's like a sister to me; uh, she is one of the most dear people outside of my nuclear family to me. So I'm just—I'm excited just to see you it's and the have bro, a conversation yo. with you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Working back up. Hey Kim, anything else about your background that you want to share with us today?
5: Yeah. uh, Hey guys, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So a little bit about me. Uh, I am really international. I say I'm a third culture kid. I'm originally from Singapore, ethnically Chinese, but I've lived in five different countries. Like I've lived in the Philippines, England, Australia, Singapore, obviously, and the US. I've had, you know, just the privilege of being in different countries and really getting kind of a very global perspective on things. Went to UT, so I'm a proud Longhorn. Been in Austin, now for, gosh, like about 16 years. Aside from working in tech, I also work a lot in uh, the Asian American space now. Like I'm the director of operations for the Austin Asian American Film Festival. I do stuff with like the Taiwanese Association. I I do a lot of stuff with just like the media and entertainment space, specifically focused on Asian American representation. And then I also used to be in full-time ministry, college campus minister for like 10 years working in media, but also in racial reconciliation. So this topic is pretty close to my heart. I've just been in the space for a really long time. Oh, and I like to bake a lot, I guess. That's my fun fact.
0: <laughs> I wish we could have been doing this live at your house. I know we would have had some <laughs> good treats if we had come your way. But yeah. As we all know, uh, so here's our little disclaimer, we are all quarantined here in our own homes and we're recording this over the internet. So thank you all for joining us in this way. Kim, I'll just stay right there with you. And mm. I'd love to just hear what the last three to four weeks of your life has been like. I mean, how has this this COVID-19 situation, the self-quarantine, all of that been affecting you?
5: I I think for me on a, a personal level, it's been hard to see the attacks that have started happening against the Asian community. You know, one of my friends is an Asian American dentist. He was on a flight back to Boston to be with his family during this time. And he had some allergies, you know, as a lot of people do in Austin, and he sneezed on the plane. And this, you know, older Caucasian guy just unleashed on him and started accusing him of having coronavirus. And when he was telling that to me, my heart just hurt because it feels like, man, we can't even sneeze or cough in public without somebody coming and attacking us. I had another uh, a guy I know who is a co-founder of 88 Rising, which is Asian American media entertainment. He posted a couple of days ago how... He was confronted by this guy. He had parked on the street in LA and this guy just started verbally harassing him and looked like he was going to attack him. And he fortunately had a friend that was with him that just went to his defense and a security guard nearby that happened to be around to also like just keep the guy from verbally, uh, physically assaulting him. And ironically, he was on his way to buy a gun because he feels that unsafe right now that he feels like he needs to have a weapon on him just in case somebody attacks him. So those two instances for me have made things very real because it's it's not just people that I'm reading about in the news, it's it's friends of mine that are getting attacked and that's pretty scary.
4: Kim, thanks for sharing that. I think it, you know, resonates with me on a personal level. Um just I I know that black people have faced attacks like that like just being scared to walk outside. Um, I know that even in the immigrant community overall, people have just lived in extreme fear. And so what I'm facing right now is something that's familiar for a lot of different people groups. And I think it's important that people recognize the dangerousness in perpetuating certain rhetoric, the dangerousness and uh, the language that the president has used for Asian people. And what this moment is like, what you are living with. I think we're all living with the collective anxiety. There's a collective heightened anxiety right now in this moment. But I think that for Asian people, there is a real fear of physical danger. And I think we um, need to hear those stories and then we all need to recognize how we play a role in calling that out and saying that that's not something that we're going to support. for, if you see it, uh, perhaps interjecting. But I think the danger is real and that those stories definitely make it real, right? It's, it's real people that this is happening to and it's not just something that's abstract. And um, I'd love to hear more Kim about how all of this is um, just impacting you.
5: Yeah. You know um, the past few weeks have been, hard i have found like you know i'm I'm in a house i'm used to going out all the time and all of a sudden like i'm quarantined in my home which you know for good reason i think the the biggest change has been for the first time in my life i'm just a little bit uneasy of being like asian in america and this was like the worst possible time for me to get a lower respiratory infection not covid guys totally fine. Um, But all of a sudden, I was like extra aware of, oh, my gosh, I don't want to be outside coughing while Asian. So that's been kind of an interesting experience being, I guess, on higher alert if I'm outdoors, which is very rarely at this point.
0: With all of that in mind, how are you processing this psychologically and emotionally?
5: It's a lot, right? For me, I've been paying attention to what COVID has been doing, not just here in the States, but also in Singapore. Singapore enacted a protocol very early on. The year actually I came to the U.S., we encountered SARS. So I actually remember kind of my country going through that. And so they were very prepared. But it makes me, you know, my family's still there, my parents, my little brother. It is kind of concerning for me that I'm separated halfway around the world from them. If anything were to happen, I don't actually know that I could get there to them or vice versa. And that's been a little hard. I think that in terms of being here It's been a little bit exhausting just because for me, because I'm in the Asian American space here, my feed and the people around me who have been just like sharing stories and things like that, it's been pretty sad, sad news. And that's been hard because I think for me, like, I'm in this place right now where when I'm checking on friends, especially those that are Asian American, we're literally asking each other, are you okay? Like, did anything happen to you today? Like, do you feel safe? And, And I've never had to do that before.
1: Thanks, Kim, for just sharing that. Connie, I'd like to ask you in that same vein, in that same like lane, how is this affecting you psychologically, spiritually, emotionally? What things are you wrestling with right now during this time of the global pandemic?
3: It's different for me a little bit because I'm, I'm kind of in this bubble of, of first-generation Asian Americans. So when my father came to the States, he you know, he wanted to be American. He wanted that American dream. And so when he had us, you know, I'm a third of four kids. When he had us, like, he didn't teach us Mandarin. He didn't, he wanted to be American. He was leaving Taiwan. He wanted that American dream that people put out there, you know, like come to America, you get all this freedom. You could build this life that you want, you know? And that's what he wanted for himself. That's what he wanted for his future family at the time. And so that's where he, you know, that was his motivation for how he raised us. As I grew up, like I, I'm starting to put together, you know, know there is still a very huge you know asian culture influence on how he raised us he just did it without the language without teaching us the language and so for me this whole thing's been it's been kind of interesting to to notice i giggled for a second when and it's not funny forgive me but when kim said coughing while asian you know i, yeah. I did that in, in a grocery store <laughs> All what was it? Mm. i did that in a grocery store and these people went like stood, like lifted their heads up from whatever they were looking at and looked right at me and then walked away. And I was like, okay, well, that's probably just cause I coughed. And then, yeah. but then I realized like they didn't move away from other people that coughed. It's an interesting place because, you know, being biracial, I don't really know how or where to identify. Do I identify as an Asian American? Do I identify as a white American? You know, I don't really know
1: Sure, but right now, how is the world around you identifying you?
3: They're responding to me as I'm Asian American, which I am, sorry. (laughs) But but that's different because it's not something that I've really taken into consideration as I've Mm. grown up. Mm. So it's kind of like a, whoa, what's... There's a tension
1: there. There's a tension there.
3: Yeah, there's a tension for sure.
1: Thank you so much. Megan, I have a question for you. As as we've heard from Kim and Connie, as a Black American, as a Black woman, as as you hear these stories now of Asians facing this discrimination and hate crimes and acts out of fear, how do you respond to that? And what's your framework coming out as someone who has had this in her life?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, it's complicated um, when you think about it through like a historical lens in this country. Obviously, it's also very personal. It's something that I think the African-American community can be empathetic to because we've actually experienced hate and just um, oppression from immutable characteristics, right? Like things like I can't take off my skin. People are going to know that I'm a black woman and they're going to respond to me that way. And I think what's happening right now is that's happening. I think it's always happens in the Asian American community, in the Asian community in the U.S. They also historically have experienced oppression. But I think right now it's just more at the forefront. And so, you know, I respond from a place of empathy, understanding really what it's like to carry a, a level of um, at least a small anxiety, if not fear, just to walk down the street. And to not know if you are safe in your body simply because of what you are, or who you are. And so I think my, my initial response is just one of, you know, sadness and empathy.
0: So, Megan, as an African-American who's been dealing with and facing racism in this country for your entire life, and then we move into the era that we are in with our current president, and language has become even more important than ever. When you heard President Trump begin to emphatically refer to this as the Chinese virus, talk me through the different filters and layers <laughs> that you processed that through being well acquainted with language and racism involved in sort of normative speech.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think words are very powerful. Language is really, really important. We've seen the way that language has driven oppression throughout history, right? Like, and so when I started to hear him refer to it as the Chinese virus, my initial reaction was visceral. I was livid because to me, it was intentional. It was overtly racist, and I was really afraid for what it would mean for Asians in this country and how people, particularly Trump's base, people who support Trump and everything that comes out his mouth they they think is good, would react to the Asian community. And I thought about, uh, you know, it took me back to um, the day after the election when Trump was elected and that morning me just crying, 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 crying all morning and realizing I was gripped with fear for what it would mean as a black person to walk outside in Trump's America and what it would mean for my black husband to drive down the road in Trump's America. And I had that same sort of response to him calling it the Chinese virus because I felt like that is what it would be like for Asians in this country at this time. When you have the person in the in the highest position with such influence, essentially placing a virus on an entire people. It wasn't that he was, you know, referring to a geographic location. He's referring to an entire people group.
0: I had an interesting sort of reaction, and I I find myself in this double-minded space a lot, which I think has to do with my own skin color and my upbringing in white America, so to speak. But you and I talked offline a little bit about this, and when I heard him first say it, I had instantly like a dualistic reaction.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. One was, this is not good. This is going to cause Additional racism to be incurred against not only chinese people but people of asian descent because let's face it most white americans couldn't tell you the difference or pick out the difference between a korean or a filipino or chinese So on and so forth, but then on the other hand I'm thinking to myself, from a global geopolitical perspective, China definitely had some blame in this situation and and didn't handle it particularly well. There's not a lot of debate about that. And so I saw this also as sort of Trump in his Trumpian way, putting blame at the feet of somebody else, right, wrong, or indifferent. And so I had this dualistic response, and I very much appreciated the opportunity to process it with you to understand why as a white male is easy for me to process in this other brain space of finding some way for it to be like, okay. And I'm not a, a Trump apologist, as you know. And by the way, this right. podcast is not a bash Trump. We're just talking about human experience and how our, how our world interacts with what takes place. Yeah. But, I, but I do find it easier to have this sort of weird measured response of I can see this, but I also see this. And then for you, someone who racism isn't just semantics, it's life and death. You, you really helped me to process that in a different way. So thank, thank you for that. Let, let me just jump down because we haven't talked to Mario yet. Mario, I'd love to hear from your perspective as another international person on this call, how is this affecting you both in a mental space and also in a spiritual emotional space right now?
2: Just to delve into just my background a little bit. I grew up, as I mentioned, you know, under apartheid and I remember going through the oppression and, you know, being hunted by police on the street and having to hide in shacks so that they didn't catch me. I remember being shot at from a helicopter and bullets zipping past my ears as I'm running down the street. And all because I was protesting an oppressive government. And I remember during that time, I felt like I wanted people to know what I'm going through and I wanted people to come to my aid. I think that was one of the things that probably stood out for me most during that time. And I think this is probably where the, you know, right now, when I listen to Connie, when I listen to Kim, I'm hearing echoes of that. Maybe not so much oppression, but it's a discrimination. It is racism. And I I can relate to that. And so I just want to acknowledge their suffering first. How does this affect me psychologically? It's It's been hard, you know, and similar to what what Megan's been saying. I think when when Trump came into power, uh, there was a real fear because he was very vocal about immigrants. He was very vocal about illegal aliens. Anyone that is basically from another country that's not white, he, he was very vocal about that. And I am on a green card. My green card is up for renewal in 2023. And I said to my wife, I'm... I'm reluctant to apply for citizenship under this administration, but I'm also very concerned that if he gets another four years, where that's gonna leave me as a person. And why I say that is currently, I think the last number I saw was unemployment sitting at, I think, was it 6.6 million people applying for benefits, something in that region. And so in my mind, I'm going, knowing this administration and the decisions that they've already made and seeing how they act. I am concerned that at some point it would come to American people are out of jobs. So if you're on a green card, you need to go back home so we can make room for our American citizens. And I have a real concern for my family, my six-year-old and my nine-year-old daughter. I don't know really what the future is going to hold for us. And that's where I'm at psychologically and spiritually. Ironically enough, it's strengthened my faith. Um, It's really caused me to draw from what I believe or what I know is the one constant in my life, and that's the power of Christ.
0: And thank you for sharing so vulnerably with us. I think as we hear from different perspectives and different stories, the humanity of the moment just rises to the surface and we start to see what this is really all about. And I said, this, this isn't a Bash Trump podcast by any stretch. And yet, you know, he, he is our president and so his words carry weight. And he also is representative, obviously, of a lot of people that support him. There was a, there was a tweet that came out from the president a few days ago. And Kim, I'd like to get your reaction to this. I'm, I'm curious if you reacted in the same way to the language that I did. But the tweet said this, it is very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. They're amazing people and the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way shape or form. They're working closely with us to get rid of it. We will prevail together. And I'm just curious as you hear those words, what stands out to you?
5: You know, I think <clears throat> on the surface a lot of people would have been like, "See, you know, he's showing support for the Asian American community." For me, I was like, "Yeah, but there's still an us versus them" kind of language in the tweet. I, I think that is something that has been a consistent struggle for Asian Americans, right? I, I'm kind of in this in-between space because, you know, I very much identify as Singaporean. I walk through the world as an international. But having been in the States for 16 years, there are also a lot of things with regards to the Asian American community that I understand and identify with. I think the challenge for, for Asians in America is, I think as an in, and first of all, right, Asian American comprises of at least 35 different Asian ethnic groups. OK, so so when people say Asian American, I, I, I'm i like, you do realize that, like, it's it's a whole lot of us just clumped together in this one group. But I will say that, like, for us, it's been an interesting experience because I feel like we're the only minority that is otherized by other minorities. And so we're, we're constantly I, I tell people like we're. We're the heroes or the villains, depending on when it's convenient for people. And at the same time, um, even if you have people who are like fifth generation Asian Americans, they're still not seen as American. They're still always seen as other. So like a common thing in the past couple of years has been a lot of different Asian Americans being told to go back to where you came from. And so when I I saw the tweet, I, I thought like, you're still branding us as other. You're, you're still saying like, we will work alongside them. We will, you know, we need to not blame them, but it's still an us versus them kind of tone. And so, and I think that is problematic that I have a lot of friends where they're constantly having to prove their Americanness because they don't look like what people think of as American, which for most people is, is a white person.
0: It's interesting. Connie, I'm going to come back to you in just one second, but I'd love to hear Megan's thoughts on what Kim has just shared.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in what she said. Obviously, as a person of color in this country, as a black person, there's a painful and complicated history. There's also a complexity between the races, which I think she alluded to when she said Asians are otherized by other minorities. I think there's just a complex history there as a black person. I too feel like people love Black culture. People don't like Black people. And a lot of times it feels like even from other minority groups that no one wants to be Black, right? Like everyone wants to distance from Black from black people. But then at the same time, we're kind of expected to champion the causes of everyone. And we have done so, I think, just because oppression is such a part of our daily life. And it's so personal for us that we innately understand, like how I understood when Trump said Chinese virus, I understood the far reaching dangerous implications of that on a very personal level in a way that maybe a white man would not, right? Because of that, and black people are naturally very communal. We have fought fights on behalf of other people groups when it feels like sometimes those groups are not showing up for us. And we're showing up for everyone. And we still continue to be looked down upon by every group. There's, you know, racism against Black people in every group. And so, yeah, I mean, I think when she, I I think I understand what Kim is saying on a personal level, but I also know it's really, really complicated.
0: Connie, as someone who is, you know, as you described, half Asian, half German, but all American, how does... How does all of that that Kim talked about play out for you?
3: When she said other, I just, I was like, that is the one of the truest things. Like it just hit so true in my heart. Like I just feel like an other. Like I don't feel like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It, it's a hard, it's a hard place to be specifically being biracial. Like I, I remember these, when she said other, it took me back to high school when we, when we had to take those standardized tests, you know, and there's like that part where you fill out in the beginning where you have to check off your ethnicity. And it, it was, you know, it was, white black whatever and then but and then there's pacific or asian pacific islander but i was like well i mean yeah but that's also not what i am either like so i just remember i would always check off other and i just it never clicked to me like how wrong that is but like it goes all the way back to how the government and the states and the education system like organized this but it just when megan says how she can personally identify with it when Trump called it the Chinese virus, you know, it makes me feel seen and known and so thankful that someone else can understand me, like specifically me, like just being biracial, it's been, you know, kind of hard to have a specific identity, but it makes me feel so thankful that you do feel what I'm feeling. But then it also makes me feel really sad that I've never, I didn't realize I knew, or I didn't realize that I didn't know what you as you know, Megan as a black woman in, in the black community that I didn't know what you guys feel, you know, and what you felt for so long. And so it broke my heart in that way too. I was like, wow, this is, you know, thank you so much. You you recognize this and, and you can feel this with me. And then on the swing of it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Connie. I think, you know, I asked Kim her reaction to that tweet and I think we're all talking about it. And irrespective of who, who says it. problem is, is that we, we as believers in Jesus, as Christians, believers in the Bible, when we read you know the opening lines of Genesis about people being made in God's image, I see a unification in that. And then when I see language that says it's important that we protect our Asian American community, they are amazing people. They are working closely with us. It emphasizes the them versus us. And my thoughts about this is that is some of the most subversive language because it's not obvious. It's not overt racism. It's not Ku Klux Klan lighting a cross on fire and making a big scene. It's the subversive way. And I think it gets, this is why we call it systematic or systemic racism, because it gets into the subconscious where people function in this us versus them way without ever even thinking about that as racism. Megan, you're on the front lines of how racism plays out in the criminal justice system. Talk to us a little bit more when you see moments in time like this come around, and, and we're all watching the economy collapse, and we're all watching the manifestation of a, a healthcare system that could be a lot better. How does that impact people who have Traditionally been thought of as the them in this yeah. culture that we live in.
4: Yeah, I think for the black community as a whole, for black Americans, this is really, really, really scary because you already have gross inequities. And so when I think about an economic collapse, right? Like Mario talked about the number of people who apply for unemployment. I think about how much more devastating it is going to be for the Black community and poor communities of color. We also have health disparities, right? So this virus is more dangerous for people with pre-existing conditions. You're going to have more pre-existing conditions in poor communities, communities of color because of the gross health disparities that have existed throughout time. And so it's really compounding inequities on top of inequities and oppression on top of oppression. And then I think about the criminal justice community and people that are in prison or in jail, even some of them pre-trial, some of them just accused and then some of them might be convicted, but they are still image bearers of Christ and they are still worthy of dignity and the risk of those communities, the risk of those people who are sitting in these cells and could be exposed to the virus without anywhere near adequate health care happening in our correctional institutions, and the disruption of family for them, the disruption of not being able to go find work or, or continue their work if they did have a job that could continue, and how far reaching this is going to go when we come out of it, and how will all communities come around these people right, come around communities of color, poor communities to actually help them achieve equity, not equality, not giving everyone the same thing, but how do we acknowledge that uh, the impact is more profound for certain communities and then bridge the gap when, when this is all over? Um, I think there's a responsibility that we have to do that.
1: Yeah, may I agree with you. Right now, you were speaking about systematic oppression and fault lines in our systems that have always been there. But during this time, they're just being exponentially exposed. And when he said, we will prevail, and the first thing I thought, of, well, who's the we? Is it people of color? Is it poor people? Is it incarcerated people? Is it people with mental or physical disabilities right now? And I think that in that same us versus them context, your question of how do we bridge, how do we then define, educate, where again, these systematic oppressions lie, these fault lines lie for all of humanity. And I just, I want to go back to what Nathan said about Genesis 1, all were created in the image of God. That all all humanity is is worthy of dignity and value and just. So how do we get from what is being exposed that has always been there, mm-hmm. the us versus them mentality? And I I also agree with you. I I worry about even after the coronavirus is long gone, the effects of those who are not educated or how, how our public health care system, what, what information they're pulling out to our government um, leaders are putting out, what they are saying now or what they are not saying now, what implications are, is it going to come in a year, in two years, in five years? How is this going to be walked out? And how is we as believers, Christian bridge to, to break that chain of oppression? Like that, that's the question at hand. Mario, do you, can I gonna go back since you lived through the time of apartheid in South Africa, do you have wisdom or? or-
2: yeah, um, I remember when we established the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, you know, the goal was exactly what the title suggests, um, reconciling our people. And I think when I look at the situation we find ourselves in today, the big thing that I feel is missing Conversation. I I feel that America, as I've experienced it, I'm on social media. I watch the news. I I see it all. I think the biggest risk we run today is we're losing the art of having conversations with one another. I feel through conversations we are going to learn one another's stories. We are going to understand each other's fears, and I think more importantly, we are getting to know one another. I think that is where we need to start. We fear because we don't know. And the only way we're going to overcome that fear is by having conversations with one another. I can tell you there's, there's things that I would love to sit down with my Asian brothers and sisters and just hear from them. I feel like the Asian history is such a rich history, but it's a voice in our society that is almost quiet. It's silent. And I would urge them to step up and speak out more. Let us hear your stories. Because I think in that we're going to get to know you. I've heard about suffering in the past and obviously what's going on right now, but I feel like there's a lot that I didn't know because they weren't speaking up. And I want to hear more from them and not just the Asian community. I think every other ethnic group that's out there, we need to learn to have conversations. I think that's where the power lies for all of us is to have conversations.
5: Thanks, Mario. This is Kim. I hear a lot of what he's saying, and I agree with Mario. I think the challenge for the, the Asian community in the states is that we oftentimes, when it comes to the race conversation, I have felt like we're not really invited to the table. Oftentimes for Asians, it feels like we're referees, right? We're neutral. Um, the race conversation for me when I've been in the States has largely been black and white. I think for Asians, a lot of times, if we try to mention that we have experienced racism or aggressions, we're usually looked at as, yeah, but it's it, what you guys have to deal with. is not that bad. You know, so so just, just be quiet because y'all don't know what you're actually talking about. The other challenge, I think, for Asians is that we, we face the tension of Eastern values clashing against Western values, right? I say this as a Chinese-Singaporean person. Now, my, my culture is very collectivistic right american culture is very individualistic and when it comes to hardships like in mandarin we have this term called liian which translates to losing face and basically it's it's the idea that you don't ever want to bring attention to yourself that would bring like dishonor and shame and so if anything is hard that happens to you our tendency is we just keep our heads down and we just work through it you know especially for people coming over there's almost like this sense of like this is the tax you pay For coming to America. Like, you're going to have to deal with racism. Don't talk about it. Don't complain. Don't make waves. But within Asian spaces, I feel like that is where I see a lot of dialogue and a lot of, this is the hurt that we feel and this is like what we're experiencing, but we only feel safe talking in those spaces. What's encouraging to me is that I see a a new generation of Asian Americans, right, who have been raised in the States. And so, they're starting to find their voice. They're starting to speak out and they're starting to say, hey, we have a stake in this too. And I think that the current situation with COVID-19 is forcing people to go, hey, we have to speak up because now we're, we're getting physically assaulted. We're getting verbally harassed. But it, it's a tension, man. You know, it's, it's a real tension between don't draw attention and don't speak out. And we have to speak out because if not nobody's going to pay attention and and I feel like for a lot of Asians that is something that we very much struggle with because realistically like in our cultures we're just not that vocal like it's not seen as something that is good because then we're seen as like oh you know you're crying victim and you're not just sucking it up and dealing with it and so that that can be hard
0: we hear a lot these days and really since 2016 about, oh, you guys are creating problems. Everything was fine. When Obama got elected, it was like we're now in a post-racial society where people thought racism is over with and done with. Now, what has happened is that racism, I would argue racism has been exposed for still being there. Not that we have created something out of nothing. And when I say we, I just mean anybody willing to say the R word in public and talk about racism. And, and, And so now I do wonder if there is, it's hard to even call this a silver lining, but maybe a long-term benefit of the underlying racism towards Asian people actually coming to the surface, being able to identify it and start to talk about it in a way that may lead to change, to, guess, to Mario's point, part of the problem is we don't have conversations. So we let people just live with their thoughts and their presuppositions all in a subconscious way and they interact with people with their underlying latent racism. And until that stuff comes to the surface in conversation, you can't identify it. TGA was powerful for me in that way because it helped me identify the racism in my own heart that I would have never admitted was there until I had my own thoughts and some conscious opinions interrogated in loving but meaningful conversation. Megan, that's something that you've been heavily, heavily involved in. Would you talk maybe a little bit more about the power of conversation as it relates to these things?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that the inclination from white people is to avoid. And I, I think there's this avoidance of discomfort there. There's this fear that you don't have the language, that you don't want to say something and be perceived a certain way. And then there's just this um, lack of acknowledgement of what might be racism in, in your own heart. But I think that um, I always say this one of the most gracious things we can do for one another is to, is to share our truth and to enter conversation like what Mario said. But to enter it, you know, I think it's different for different people. I think white people need to enter conversation with a large degree of humility, Uh, understanding that there's likely a lot that you don't know, and also a recognition that whoever you're asking people of color, it's not our job to teach you, right? Like it is an act of grace and mercy for us to share our stories with you. But that also comes with a degree of pain and sacrifice. And so to enter the conversation in a place that's like, look, I know that this is going to be costly for you. Um, But I want to understand what you're going through, particularly if you did that with someone in the Asian community right now. It would be to say, look, I want to understand what I can do in this moment, but I also know there's a lot I don't know. And this is likely a scary and painful time for you. But would you be willing to share what you're feeling, sort of what we're doing right here? And then there's also a responsibility to self-educate. Google is a thing. It is available. A lot of people use it for things they don't know. So. There is a responsibility for everyone to educate about, you know, oppression and racial oppression and things that we might not know. I know as a Black American, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to know about other people, groups, international community, and it is my job to do the legwork and try to educate myself. But I think overall, storytelling is powerful, right? Understanding someone's personal experience is powerful. So I think that, you know, when people are saying, well, what can I do? You know, I don't own the government. I can't make the president not tweet these things. But what you can do is start by educating yourself and recognizing the holes that you have and going from there. Megan, I just want
1: to first say thank you for your long-term membership at Mosaic and really creating a space for our local church to have these conversations and to hear the experiences, to hear the stories, to learn how to have these conversations that create those bridges that we're just speaking of right now. I know that I, when I responded to that tweet of, we all will prevail, I wouldn't have responded the same way six years ago. I would have assumed I'm I'm very like a corporate matters to me, the whole matters to me. But there for a long time, there was naivety. There was, there was blind spots. I I still have them biases that I didn't understand that I would have been like, oh yeah, we, all of us will prevail. <laughs> not understanding that that wasn't truth for all people, um, and it was by the grace of God for for you and for Nina Jenkins, another leader of a, of our the Gospel Antga Ministry at, at our church, giving me space and letting me learn. Really speaking your truth to me, saying, Corey, I don't mind having this conversation, but I need to know what it's costing me. I'll carry this, but you, but not without you understanding what I'm carrying." And that was a gift to me. It, it truly was a gift to me to learn how to walk this out better as a white person, um, as a white mom, as you know. Know, raise, raising children, um, in white America, you know. So I just, I just thank you, and I, I definitely think that it has been a learning curve, but the fruit of it, my gosh, the fruit of it, the gospel work that it is, and I think that's where I go back to. I think this can be considered political conversations, social justice conversations, but it's not. It is a gospel work. What does the Lord require, uh, require of us to? do justice, seek justice, act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. This is gospel work, gospel conversation. May your kingdom come. The kingdom is just. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. That is just work. And that is what he's calling us to do.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Corey. It's Connie here. I just wanted to talk about when Mario brought up conversations and then it, you know, it reminded me of when when we started TGA at church, and I know I've mentioned this previously, being biracial, I, I never really saw myself as part of a specific community. And so because of the conversations that Mosaic has allowed us to have in a safe environment, it's actually helped me as an individual, as a person to see myself differently and to see myself as a woman of color, as, as a member of the Asian American community, but also it's allowed me to learn about that that part of me. You know, like we've said, God's created us in his image, all of us, every single person, not just white, black, even the blended colors. All of that is also in his image. It was at first like hard for me to have this conversation because I'm coming from the perspective of the Asian culture of just be quiet, put your head down and do your work. Over time, like even that has broken down part of my culture and allowed me to to step into a new place the Lord's really wanting us to be. And like, He doesn't want us to sit and be quiet. You know, He doesn't want us to sit back and just watch and allow things to happen to my culture, to the Asian American community, but also to the black community, to the other minority communities in the country. Like that's not His design for us. He doesn't call us to be quiet. My voice matters and that I can speak out for other minority communities and to be able to come to their defense we got to learn to speak against the lie. And I say we as Asian community, but me also specifically, like we've got to speak against the lie of being quiet. That's just not who we should be.
0: Hey Kim, as we start to wrap up, I guess, let me just ask you, what is it that you feel like the Asian American community? And I know it's a big one, but what does that community need to hear from people like myself and Corey from, from white evangelical Christian Americans What does the Asian community need to hear from us right now?
5: Oh gosh, that is a big question. (laughs) I think we just want to hear that people are with us. It can be as simple as if you have Asian American friends calling them up, being like, hey, how are you doing? Is there anything that you need help with? There are a lot of Asian restaurants right now that are terrified that they're going to go under because people for some reason, think that if they eat their food, they're going to get the virus. My thing is, if you see something, say something. Like if you see somebody getting harassed or getting attacked, just knowing that other people are there makes a big difference. I think, you know, the beautiful part about being part of the Christian community is that God knits us together as a family, right? God God says we are all his children and I think when I think about family, right, which is in Asian culture, family is a big thing. You know, your community. In times of hardship, we, we rally together and we come together and we support. And support, I think, can look very different for different people. Sometimes support is listening. Just just tell me and I will listen and I will sit with you. And then other times support is doing something. Maybe your Asian friend is afraid to go to the grocery store and you offer to go for them. And so I think for me, like the most caring thing anyone can do is just to say, hey, I'm here. How can I support you? To me, just is everything really.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Mario, you talked about the complicated history facing racism and not feeling the support at times that you wish you would have had from the Asian population, both in South Africa and here in the States. And this is hard to say. And as a white person in America, I always even pause a minute before I make this statement because I realize it's easier uh, said by me than applied by others. And yet, one thing we know to be true about Christianity is that it is nothing if not self-sacrificial. So, you know, we've asked Kim to speak to white Christian Americans, but I guess I would ask you through, through all of your complicated story and history and dealing with racism and all of that, what do you think other people of color can and should be doing to help amplify Asian people in America as image bearers of Christ and to help them fight back against the oppression and racism that they are experiencing
2: right now? I think to answer that question, Nathan, I'm, I'm going to draw from my, my Christian roots. Having gone through what, what I went through, I think there's one thing that I realized, and Paul said, be imitators of Christ. And when I think about being an imitator of Christ, I, I think of it as a reflection on the life of Christ and how he responded to various challenges, various you know, scenarios that he found himself in, various people groups. There was one thing that was always at the call, and that was love. But love did not mean don't say anything. Love did not mean don't do anything. I reflect on that, and as hard as this might be, maybe for some in the Asian community, I think what I learned was in the midst of the suffering to still reach out and love. I think that's how people got to know our identity, that's how people understood our humanity was us showing them love, yet in the midst of great oppression, through our action, through our words. I felt that that ultimately, even though it took almost three decades, that's ultimately what won in the, at the end of the day, was our ability to still love under extremely trying times. That for me is the most powerful demonstration and, and way that you break down what we find ourselves up against these days.
4: This is Megan. I think it's important that, you know, we all respond to the oppression and the hate and the racism that's happening to Asians right now. I remember after Mike Brown was killed, one of the things that really was the impetus for TGA for me and and wanting to create space in the church to talk about these things was that I did not know if the people that I went to church with in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church really, really cared. It felt like they loved me They cared about me as a person, but did they care about the things that were impacting my community? And I think that what Kim said, Asians need to know that people care right now is really, really powerful. It's very personal for me. It felt like I could come into this church, you would hug my neck and we would worship together and you would say, oh, I'm so happy to see you. I love you. But then when it came to talking about things that could directly impact my community, you didn't care. You didn't show up beyond going on a mission trip and talking about what you did on that mission trip. But was it really personal? Did you really want to sacrifice for equity for me? And so I think Christians have a responsibility to get past their discomfort and to show up and to actually speak out. And um, showing up can look like intentionally visiting Asian businesses during this time. There's beyond even just restaurants, there's grocery stores, there's things like that that you could visit and you could actually sow financial seeds into. But then there's also speaking out and raising your voice in a public way. And for better or for worse, social media is a thing and it matters. And I will tell you, when I don't see people address certain issues on social media, particularly if they're a person that uses social media in that way. And I don't see you do it when it comes to issues like this. It is very loud. Your silence is very loud. I would just encourage Christians during this time um, to actually show up for their brothers and sisters in Christ and to just show that they care and to raise their voice and to challenge the people in their lives that are perpetuating hate or oppression.
2: Well,
0: thanks to all of you for a great conversation. Megan, if I could just put an exclamation point on what you just said, let me just do that. I think that everything you just described is really helpful. I would encourage everyone, what Mario said earlier is really, really key. Have conversation. So the question that I put to Kim earlier, if you find yourself not knowing kind of what's going on right now or how you can support. Uh, It's a great question to ask your friends that are Asian American. What can I do to help you right now? What can I do to show up and support you right now? And I would say that, again, I'm speaking to people like myself, white evangelical Christian Americans. That's a great question, by the way, to ask all of your brothers and sisters of color on a regular basis. How are you doing right now? what can I do to show up for you? What can I do to support you? What are you facing that nobody knows about? And find a way to care and be a friend. Not to go and get your education. I agree with Megan. Google exists. I used it earlier today for an electrical problem. And guess what? You can use it for race problems. You can learn a lot. You can educate yourself online. But what you can't really educate yourself on is the emotions that some people are feeling and how to minister. Because at the end of the day, all black Americans are not a monolith. All Asian Americans are not a monolith. And the people that God has placed in your life do have even a greater priority in terms of your own obligation to care for them, minister to them, because you actually can. And we can't solve all the problems, but we can minister to the people that Jesus puts right in front of us. And so as a church mosaic, that's part of what we're called to do. We're called to minister to the people that Jesus has put in front of us. We're called to speak out. We're called to stand up. We're called to remind each other that every person is an image bearer of God. But we are called to live in community. We are called to be in that relational space with people where we know what's affecting them and we learn how to care and then we do the work that it takes to do that. And so that's my exclamation point on everything that's been shared today. Ask the questions, have the conversations and keep showing up. And hey, speaking of keep showing up, I hope that you'll continue to show up with us on Sunday mornings when we have our services. We're still broadcasting services on Facebook Live, on YouTube every Sunday. We'll, we'll broadcast at 8.30, at 10, at 11.30 and at 1 p.m. And there's also an evening offering that will come back around about six o'clock in the evening. So definitely stay connected to that. If you aren't following us on social media, I encourage you to do so. We've got daily content from other church leaders. that's coming out every single day to hopefully help motivate you, to, to help encourage you, to help you to stay sane during this incredibly difficult time. And by the way, if you're not in a Mosaic community group, there's never been a better time to join than right now. Those are still happening over Zoom. You get to see people's faces. You get to do exactly what we just talked about, have conversations and hear what's going on, to, to minister to people, to be ministered to by people. Maybe you need ministry right now. That's a great place to go and get it from people who love Jesus and who love you and who care about you. So I encourage you all to stay connected to your church. Listen, we're going to get through this. We're going to be better on the other side. I believe that God is doing an amazing work in the midst of this crisis, and he wants to build up each and every one of us to make us more like him on the other side of COVID than we were on the front side of it. So thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that you'll tune in next week for Tuesday's R for Talking. God bless you. Take care.
5: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesday's R for Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.